Thank you for listening to Radio Never Apart. I'm your host, Jordan King. In this episode, I'm speaking with New York nightlife icon. Wait, even icon uh, maybe doesn't do her justice. How about goddess? Miss Connie Fleming. Uh, Connie, in recent years, has worked the door for a few different parties and venues and has been focused on her illustration work. But before all of that, she walked the runway for some legendary designers. She has been photographed by some of the hugest names in fashion and was one of the original performers at Boy Bar in the 1980s. Quick note for clarification. We start by speaking about the exhibition currently on display titled Bijou, which is what I'm referring to when I say project. I'm like really over the moon. I almost can't even put into words how excited I am to be speaking with you. (laughs) I think this is the most excited I've been for any interview I've done. Um, Thank you for speaking to me today. Thank you, Jordan, my lovely, lovely Jordan, and congratulations. Thank you. Oh, this project was, um, I mean, it was a dream come true that still was able to come true despite the sort of nightmare that this year has been. Um, it's like the best way I can describe it. It really was a, was the beacon for me throughout the last like six to eight months. Um, yeah. Um, and, and, you know, you were such an integral part in sort of helping to move it forward because you and I, um, spoke about it a year ago and it just, that was so galvanizing for me, that conversation. But before we dive into that, um, tell listeners who you are, Connie Fleming. Well, hello. Um, my name is Connie Fleming. Um, I am a, um, illustrator, um, stylist, um, model coach and a door bitch from hell <laughs> here in New York. Um, I've been trundling along um, for hundreds of years, <laughs> it seems, in New York, um, in nightclub and performance um, and in the art world. So... And you are as ageless as ever. So serve it to those children. You could be a thousand <laughs> years old and you look better than ever. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. Thank you. My mother and father and my esthetician. Thank you. Oh. Um, <laughs> and I try a little kind lighting, um, a gallon of water a day. <laughs> And as much rest in the coffin as I can get. Brilliant. So. And I would go, I would go one step further. I don't even think you are just a door bitch from hell. I think you are the door bitch from hell in New York City. Like original, truly um one of a one of a kind. Um, oh no, I was I was petrified by the door person. I can't remember. Um, their name at um, at area, um, and then there was Sally Randall, and um, there, there there were those who preceded me that taught me mm. the game, mm. and like you know, I, I I really learned by hanging out, yeah, and um, seeing them work. And uh, being a performer, like, you know, you would be there at the end of the night and you would hear the war stories. Right. And I was like, oh, that's how you do it. (laughs) So I got I I got a lot of tutelage. Okay. From my predecessors. Tell tell us about your story. I mean, I know a little bit about your involvement in New York Nightlife going back into the 80s, and I heard a really, really wonderful story from um, Her Royal Highness Princess Deandra seeing you on the dance floor at the Paradise Garage. And I also know that you were born and raised um, 
essentially born and raised New Yorker. Well, um, I was born in Jamaica and uh, we moved here, me and my mom, when I was around five and grew up here in Brooklyn. Okay. Um, and I was like, you know, a trans kid growing up in the 70s and 80s in New York. It was not very conducive or yeah. nice. Yeah. Um, so I was, you know, I, I, I was a broken child and I, um, my only saving grace was art. Mm. Always draw. I always had a great sense of like color and, um, it was my, like my respite and mm. my way to get along and as best as I could in school because it was violent and vicious and, um, you know, it, it wasn't any place that I really felt safe unless I was in art class. Mm. Like, I guess like the first to second year of high school, um, I was like, I got to get the hell out of here because the older, um, I got the more, um, sexual, mm threats became and the more um interested boys became in me mm. like it was like a barrel on fire mm -hmm. uh, rolling down the hill mm -hmm. so I was like I gotta get the fuck about a dodge this is I I'm gonna end up like you know like face down in in a pool of my own blood that's um, that spidey sense like that sense is yeah. like it just gets stronger yeah. and stronger i think too like as time goes by for for a lot of us i mean i was i had a very similar situation myself it was like as the years went by in high school i just increasingly felt like less and less and less safe um and i basically found a way out myself i mean as of like the 10th grade i was sort of checked out although i did gradually i did eventually get my adult diploma but i can totally relate um it just gets sort of sketchier as time is going by through high school into like 10th 11th grade and stuff yeah and and by the time um girls start liking boys it's just like it elevates yeah it elevates to such an intensity that you're like i might not get home alive today yeah so I started to apply for um, art schools, Parsons, mm. FIT, all like that, and trying to get out of high school as soon as possible. But like the situation we were talking about, I couldn't get out um, because I didn't have enough gym, mm. gym phys ed credits because that, that, that was where it really became super dangerous yes. and super threatening. Yeah. So I just couldn't go back. Hmm. So, okay, let me get my GD. I got my GD and started to apply for art schools. I was like, wait a minute, I need a job if I'm going to like do this. Mm -hmm. And um, I started to look around in Soho at the art galleries because that, that, that was also my kind of respite. Mm. were the art galleries and museums here in New York. Mm. I mean, you know, for, for all what they said about New York, it was dangerous and dirty, but I was a child and it was my playground. Mm -hmm. And it was still at that point where people still kind of looked out for you as a kid. Mm. Um, I was walking around Soho and started to go upward towards the village. And um, I saw a help wanted sign in uh, the window of the antique boutique. Mm. It was a, a vintage store. Um, and I went in and I got the job. And I think it was the first not the first day. I think it was like maybe the first week um, I met Glamour Moore, David Glamour Moore, the, oh. the, um, the incomparable yes, hog queen of lipstick. Of course, yes. Glamour Moore. And um, we kind of didn't really like each other at the beginning. It was like two cats in a bag. <laughs> 
because we were so kind of similar. Yeah. Um, and um, one day a woman came in and she was looking at this dress and she was like, oh, Mr. Blackwell. And she was like, oh, I wonder if this is the same Mr. Blackwell. And we both turned and said, yes, it's the same Mr. Blackwell, because Mr. Blackwell used to do the 100 best dress list huh. back in like the 80s. Okay. So we were like, oh, you're not half bad and you at least know something. <laughs> so, <laughs> um, you know, some things about fashion, you're not a total dud. <laughs> <laughs> and we became fast friends and that like first summer we ran around um, the city and like just bonded and taught me so much about my heritage um, the community what was what who was who where was where we were heavy into our chow manhattan edie sedwick phase of course he said one night let's go to this bar and i was so like still very injured especially when it came to um attraction and sex and all of that because it was the beginning like you know the aids crisis had really started to hit the floor running in like 85, 84, 85. Yeah. And it was frightening and daunting and coming from like an inter-childhood where like, you know, sex and attraction meant danger. Um, I was still very, you know, so super cut off from that. Um, but I was like, okay, let's go. And uh, we went, and that night, it just so happened that Matthew Caston of the famous Matthew Caston Boy Bar Beauties was there speaking with the owner, Paul McGregor, uh, the famous Paul McGregor creator of the shag cut that um, he, ga he gave um, Jane Fonda that haircut for Clue, who owned the boy bar. I think it was a salon um, downstairs on the ground floor, because I think he owned the whole building. And I think he lived on the top floor, and then the salon was on the second floor. Okay. Or, or, like, he did private clients on the second floor, and the first floor was, like, walk-in clients and all like that. So um, it just so happened that that night Matthew was there talking with Paul about doing shows at that venue. And Paul said, you know what? Yeah, let's, let, let's try it. And um, after the meeting, David and I walked in, and David knew everybody. And I was like, oh, my God, ooh, a bar, ooh, liquor, ooh, men. Um, he introduced me to Matthew, and we hit it off immediately and spoke about our influences and, like, you know, like from film to art to fashion. And we really just connected. We were, we, we were all going home on the way to the subway. Um, he was like, oh, well, you know, I just spoke with Paul McGregor, the owner of the spot. Um, he gave me the go ahead and I'm going to start doing shows. And he was like, um, you know, like we were talking about old uh, Golden Age Hollywood musicals. You mean like that? And he was like, yes, like that. And we got to the train station. I just got on the train. And as the doors are closing, he said, um, by the way, you're going to be in the first show. See you then. And the door closed, and I was like, wait, what did he just say? <laughs> he wasn't giving you an option. <laughs> uh-uh, no. Yeah, hello. <laughs> I think it was, the first one was either Christmas or New Year's. I remember, like, being super sick to my stomach, like, just before going on. And he literally pushed me on stage. Oh. And he pushed me on stage. The lights hit me. And I couldn't see anything. And I was like, oh, wait a minute. I think I can do this. I can't see them. <laughs> I can't see the audience. <laughs> and um, I never looked back from, from then. And, like, a year later, we were, like, hitting it. And yeah. We had made a name for ourselves, and we were stars below 14th Street. 
Yeah. And to provide a little bit of context, um, I mean, in one of the previous interviews I did in this series, like this year, um, I interviewed Lauren Pine and and Miss Guy, and we talked a little bit about the history of Boy Bar and stuff. So it's kind of come up if people are listening to the podcast regularly. But, but Boy Bar was really just this like magical sort of confluence and like so much creative talent. It's like hard to even wrap my head around personally I mean I've interviewed a lot of people speaking about it um and and I knew you were at the sort of core of it from its like inception which is partly why I was so excited to talk to you and hear your story (laughs) of it and stuff um because you were you were almost like the the face of it I mean there was a roster of performers but you were really like such a signature part of it I think um did you have any performance experience prior to that like at all or, or had you been going to shows at all before no that? just being a fool at home and playing um hollywood musical or wow. the share show or um like you know like pretend it was yeah. all pretend at home started with the three of us myself glamour Moore, and shannon and um at that point in like the early like early 80s to mid 80s when I started um it was you know um there was pyramid and a couple of bars but it wasn't the thing to do right you know to to do drag it was it was low and the lowest of the low Mm -hmm. and um I didn't know that I never felt that um from the crowd it was only after that I felt that, but then we had built our name to mean professional. We were polished. Well, sometimes not always on time for me, <laughs> but, you know, we kind of retooled it because of Matthew's vision of like being uh, Madame Arthur's in Paris in the 50s or, or, or like what was starting to happen in Vegas with La Cage Faux. So, you know, it wasn't like um, something um, low or um, low class or kind of put aside as not being worthy. Yeah, I so I interviewed Matthew a few times in the spring, and when I got a sense of just how much was put into those shows and into making Boy Bar what it was, I was like actually almost doubly blown away. He talked about the costumes that were purchased from the costume house when it went out of business and they liquidated everything. So they were these like really high-end costumes and having like, you know, regular consistent rehearsals and having themes and just like the amount of thought that went into it. I mean, so incredible. Yeah, and that's that's what I think elevated it. The shows were timely and about what was happening around us. And it was also kind of a respite for the carnage. Yeah. of the plague that was going on around us. And, you know, it was a meeting place of community because I think the folklore goes that ACT UP was started around the bar at Boy Bar. So it was a place of meeting, of community, of connecting. That along with high concepts and because Raven O was an experienced dancer and choreographer, um, David was an incredible and is an incredible designer. Yeah. His stuff was carried at, um, at Ber- was it at Bergdorf's or something at one point? Yeah. Like, yeah. Yeah. Incredible. Because it's like, you know, he, he, he was the designer that des- that's, was doing all of those wonderful bodysuits for Kier at the beginning. Right. Because it was David and then Matthew of Ma- uh, Zaldi of Matthew and Zaldi, then New Glare. Right. So it was like, you know, it was, it was all of these creative entities that were in you know, the Lower East Side, East Village at that point. Yeah. Because it was the community. It was a community of artists and fashion because 
that was the cheapest place to live mm -hmm. in, in in the city at that point. One of the cheapest places to live was like, you know, like Alphabet City yeah. and um, like, you know, East Village all, all, all through there. And an artist or a makeup artist or a hairstylist or a young photographer could live and work and create without mm -hmm. having to, you know, have, have more than, than have like, you know, 70% of their income be for rent. Well, there's a, there's a couple things. I mean, one, so that was one of the things that I really, that, that struck me so much. It was like really sort of, I, I just felt really schooled on it by, by Clark. I mean, you know, rest in, in power. Clark taught me so uh -huh. much in the time I lived with him, but he talked about those sort of creative spheres and he taught me about you know club 57 and the mud club and cbgb's and the pyramid and and you know and i don't think that they're necessarily his his words per se but they really were like little laboratories um yes. of just creativity and the amount of ideas that were born out of those collaborations and just that creative energy and stuff um i mean i think it's one of the reasons why like that period in new york will maybe not be replicated again anytime soon, especially in the reality we're currently in, because a lot of it is born out of, you know, face-to-face -face and in-person time spent together in the way that ideas are born from all of that. Totally, totally. And that interaction, yeah, the interaction between artists, the interaction between artists and audience, the kind of urgency, um, having nothing and... Like, like, you know, having lemons and making lemonade out of lemon. Yeah. That's that. That's what the pyramid was. That's what all, all of that was. Yeah. You know, I you had to, like, make a look. Yeah. Every day when, when, when you went out for that night. I mean, there's so many creative people because they had to hit the ground running when they were going out to clubs, they had to come up with a look, do their own hair and makeup, you know, and if, and if it came to, if you didn't buy your outfit, you made it, or you, like, painted it, or you bedazzled it, or you, like, you Crafted know, tarred it, and feathered it, it, it and yeah. went out with it. Yeah. That, that kind of trial by fire yeah. of always having to come up with a look because you wouldn't get into a nightclub without a look. Yeah. And that's what I found so fascinating too. And one, you know, a few of the interviews I've done, people have commented on that, that even in the smaller clubs and venues that weren't necessarily these like big sort of mega clubs, you still could be denied even at the little small places if they just didn't yeah. like how you looked or yeah. if you just I don't like your tie. Yeah. Go home. Yeah. The, your shoes are awful. Go home. <laughs> it's um... your choice of eyeliner. Go home. <laughs> I know in a previous conversation you and I had, you spoke about being given the April Ashley autobiography, I believe. Yes. Um, can you talk a little bit about like, did, so did you have a sense or understanding of like the history or were you taught a little bit about the history? Um, I, when was, you were... I was taught a little bit, a little bit about the history from starting with David Glamour and then Matthew and one day... Uh, we went to rehearsal, and Matthew's like, okay, this week we have international crisis. And there was an audible gasp in the room from Raven and Garmin Moore, who knew who she was. But I was so brand spanking new and was still being, like, guided that I didn't know who she was. And she came and she hit the stage and it was like the performance skill and the level of control of the audience was awe-inspiring. Mm. It was like Frank Sinatra, like Judy Garland, you know, that, that kind of performer that has already, that already has the audience in the palm of the hand before they hit the stage. That's what kind of performer she was. Like during rehearsal, um, because I can't remember what was the first one, but we were just her backup dancers. And we were talking and um, she turned to me and she said, whenever you're ready, just come and talk to me. And I was like, oh, 
Okay, but I did I want to talk to you? Did, what what did I say? What what did I do? And she saw and knew who who I was, hmm. and just said, you know, when you're ready, I'm here. We can talk. And it took me a couple of months because I was still, you know, reeling from this new kind of life, this existence that. I was so tremendously lucky to find and that I, like, you know, wasn't on the street and that I wasn't hooking because that that, that would be the only place for me. And it's like, it, it took me a couple of months to get the chutzpah up and we met and she was like I know I know I know I know and she we just started to talk and everything like that and then the next time um we met she was like come over I'm going to teach you about hormones and I have something for you so I went over she she taught me about hormones, how to reuse needles, how to boil a needle, because by then all the syringes were off the street because of intravenous drug use and the transmission of AIDS. Uh, So nobody could get syringes anymore. So she's like, okay, this is a new one and you're going to have to reuse it. So here's how you boil it and disinfect it and use it again for your next shot. Um, Wow. Then she gave me the April Ashley book. It was like, I was like, okay, but it's a white woman. And like, you know, she's a model. And she says, just read it. Because she saw, she saw in me my potential and what I could achieve. And she kind of sensed and knew that I wasn't ready for it yet, but she wanted to prepare me. She wanted to prepare me for what was about to come. And thank God I was, you know, I got to really see the professional world of um, being trans at that time in you know the world outside of performing and like you know she's like you know there she said there is going to come a time when you want to you might want to I think she said you might want to leave performing just so that you can frame your mind in your new reality um and there were lots of little things that 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 she said about about being trans in this world and how to navigate it. And the April Ashley book was like my first kind of view on the world and how it isn't immediately closed to us Mm -hmm. as trans people. Mm -hmm. That, you know, it's dangerous and daunting and you're going to have to fight every inch of the way, but you can carve out and make your own existence and your own world and you can live a life i mean now i i I feel like like there's more of a chunk that we can carve out for ourselves Mm -hmm. because there were there, there were certain things that you know growing up when she did in the 50s and 60s and her parents wanting to commit her yeah and like, you know, but because um, she's in the Queen, she, she's in the Queen, um, Jack Dorsha is the Queen. Yeah. She's, she's one of those young queens. And, you know, she carved out and made her way and became, you know, a muse of Salvador Dali was on the album cover of, of the Ohio Players album, I think. And like carved out and became this respected performer that was beyond drag and that was you know a trans woman in and carved out her niche in a world that didn't know a lot about trans when it was just seemed as like um poor delusional freak who, like, you know, wants to fool the world. But she wasn't. She was who she said she was. 
and you saw that on stage, you saw that in, 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 in life. And, you know, it, it was, it was a really wonderful, 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 um, gift the day that, 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 that she walked into that rehearsal. And not only for me, for all of us, for Matthew, for, for all of us as young performers, like learning our craft, it was a gift. And for me, it was a gift as a trans woman. Um, but, and it was a great history lesson also of passing it on. And, you know, if I get a foot in the door, I do not close the door behind me. You know, when I get in the door, you know, put up my feet on the chair so that when I leave, there's room for not one, but two to three to four, mm-hmm. because I put up my feet on, uh, on the chairs and made room for those who are coming behind me, because mm. that, that was a big part of the education especially in downtown, like New York, performance community. Yeah, she was she was like in a category all her own. I mean, that's the way that a lot of people have described her. It's just that she was she was so kind of advanced in her way of thinking and her way of operating in terms of like what was possible for trans people. Yes. And that she was, you know, maternal in a, like a nurturing way. Um, and that she was like really proudly transgender she's a a lot of the people that i talked to about her said that she's the first person they ever heard use that word at a time when there wasn't there wasn't a term that was really like you know used and it's also like hard for people i think young people to imagine but i think it's so important for like us to share this is that like this was not that long ago that like there was no google there was no internet this information was so hard to come by and you weren't just like going to the library to like check a book out about sexual diversity or, you know, gender identity and stuff. Like, it's like, if you didn't have these connections, you would have never accessed. lived experience. Yeah. Lived experience. And um, because she was a generation, like, I think after Cooksey Now and maybe like towards Amanda, Amanda Lear, she came along um, because she was a teen in the um in the queen she was like a little bit after amanda lear so like you know that community was very closed Mm -hmm. very insular um you protected each other because it meant life and death Mm -hmm. literally whatever you learned and whatever you knew you had to pass it on to the next because it was, you you know, it was so limited and they knew that it was a way to keep, to keep us down, to keep us insulated, to keep us um, readily um, kind of downtrodden and kind of whittled away at our at our like psyches and our um self worth so Mm -hmm. that we could be used and thrown away you had to you had to pass it on you had to give the girl next to you a leg up because it meant that she would turn around and give you the same thing because you know it it doesn't it didn't matter if one survived it mattered if we all survived it mattered that we all like protected each other because the world was not ready for us the world didn't want us the world was threatened by us so we had to protect ourselves and each other that 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 was a real kind of sense because um it was it was like that with a lot of the 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 trans clubs in new york um like esquilitas and sally's hideaway you know that that was where you learned where you can go for what right you you can you can go to this doctor's office on a thursday after 12 you walk in that bitch and if there's an asian woman 
behind that desk, turn around and leave. Go get a cup of coffee, come back later. And if it's a if it's a Spanish woman with a with like gray temples, roll up and say, I want, I want this, that, and the third. If it's oh that Asian gosh. bitch, don't go back up in there. Oh my gosh. I mean, it's so fascinating because it's a little bit like my story, which I shared in a recent podcast episode that I very, very coincidentally met, a, a, you know, an older trans woman when I was like 20, who she connected me with her family doctor, because mm-hmm. even like, I mean, Connie, I'm not that old, but this was like within my lifetime that it was like, if you didn't know who yeah. to go to, which doctor to go to, how to, you know, who was going to prescribe you. And I had a doctor you would turn me down. And, and they would put your name on a piece of paper, never let this freak in again. That, 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 that kind of shit. Yeah. And it's really like, it's not that long ago. Like it's, this is no, very recent. No. It's like, you know, with, with this last administration, a, a, a couple, a, a couple more months, a couple you know, a signing of this or that, it would have went right back to what it was. Yeah. In the blink of an eye. Because it was. When, when, but I, I was talking to a girlfriend and she's like, it was the wild, wild west. No, so Crisis, um, so Crisis died in, in 1990, and she was very young. She was, I think, yeah, only 39. But during that time, I mean, you were still really actively involved with Boy Bar, th- sort of throughout the course of its of its life, right? Like, Boy Bar also wasn't open for, like, you know, 10 or more years, per se, but it had a really, you know, really solid run and nurtured many other performers who came up through the ranks and stuff like that. Were you involved through that time? Like, do you remember when when Crisis passed? Um, I started in 85 and went until 90, 91, because it was like Crisis said, there might be a time when you want to leave performing and I needed to I needed to kind of um retool kind of my like life because I was well into my transition and wanted to give myself a chance to transition and sort of clear the slate not um because I think sometimes when I say that it's misconstrued as like I was ashamed or didn't think anything of drag or that, like, you know, I was turning my back on drag, which I wasn't. It's just that you kind of need to, at some point, live in the straight world. You have to. There's there's no kind of other way that you can go about in life. I mean, like, you know, it, you're, you're not turning your back on your LGBT community, but you kind of have to learn how to live in your world. I was already starting uh, to model, and I also thought, you know, let me give that a chance. Well, you've just had some incredible highlights in your modeling career that... I think a whole generation of children cannot even wrap their minds around it. Even I can't. Honey, where should we begin? Westwood, Mugler. Uh, a little Jean-Franco Ferre, um, some Andre Walker. I never got to to work with Gautier, uh, which oh. I totally wanted to. But I think... Um, like, I, I was afraid to kind of, like, go to the other camp. It's like Pat Cleveland said, either you were with the Halston crowd or you were with the YSL crowd. So I was kind of afraid to go over, set my toes in the um, Gautier. Because when I did Westwood, I wasn't doing New Glare that season. So I was mm-hmm. like, okay, let me roll up on there. And I had already worked with her when um, when she did um, her show here in New York. So I was like, okay, let me roll up. And nobody got mad. So then I was like, okay, um, let's go for goatee. But then the pendulum swung back and it was like, you know, drag and fashion. And I was kind of pulled up into that because of my you know, my, 
night past at Boy Bar. So I've always been curious to ask this, though. Like, I know that the modeling, like, it happened sort of organically for you. And that Mugler was, I mean, sort of this, like, insane opportunity. But you were connected with a lot of people. And that sort of one thing led to another, led to another. And But did you ever have an agent? Like, after the first couple of seasons, Mugler had a party uptown. I can't remember where it was. Everybody was there. Everybody who was who was anybody was there. This guy came up to me and said, oh, how are you? And I was like, oh, you know what? He's like, I love your look. Well, would you come and come to my agency? I'd love to talk to you about representation. I was like, oh, great. And I called him a couple of days later, and I went in, and it was Michael Flutie from Company Model Management. And he was like, well, you know, I, I didn't want to say anything, but I didn't exactly know what your deal was. You know, I saw you and Naomi talking, and it's so incredible, you know, two black girls, blah, blah, and you glare, and you knew me glare. And so I was like, oh, wow, I have an agent. And they did really great for mm. me. I mean, there wasn't basically any work mm. for me in, in New York because I was kind of too well-known here. And it was, you know, because back then um, it was, you know, oh, you, you can't work for this one or you can't work for that one because um, people will think that you're trying to fool them, which meant, you know, you don't exist and nobody wants to see, hear, or know of you. It's so mind-boggling. And I modeled, like, very, very, very briefly. And, I mean, we're talking, like, in Canada, where it was, like, obviously nothing. But the the stuff people said, like, to my face even, (laughs) made me just be like, nope, um, that's a pass for me. Um, And and there's been, like, this handful of, of, like, trans models that have really had amazing careers or had these amazing moments that they've been a part of, but it's always been very short-lived. And then, as we all know, I mean, virtually every sort of five to ten years, there would be, like, one uh, who... Then there would be this big reveal and then this big scandal and, and uh-huh. like, you know... Um, and, and you Get had, rid of it. Yeah. Burn all the evidence. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And yet you had Terry Toy as a fairly recent example, and I, I'm... I'd be curious to know, like, just how aware of her you were, because I also don't think that Terry Toy was ever not known to be trans. She was, there was never, like, a big sort of reveal with with her. <laughs> Lived and worshipped for her. She was spoken of in hushed tones whenever she would appear. Dean Johnson, a great performer, club impresario, um, we did backups for him, and one of his uh, songs was Terry Toy, Terry Toy, Let Me Rock You, Terry Toy. You know, she was spoken of in hushed tones. People knew, but I don't think it was like, like my first couple of seasons in, in Paris. It was only the downtown, like, hair, makeup, design community that knew my history and my story. But the general public kind of didn't know. And that's the way it was for Terry. And she had, you know, the superstar photographer as her champion. But because they got married at the limelight, she and Steve Mizell had, had like this marriage evening. <laughs> oh, I didn't know. Yeah, they, they had a mock marriage. It was fabulous. It was just before I started to go out. So I read about it. And I think it was like an interview and in details. So I was just like, oh, my God. Terry Toy, Terry Toy. Then she was muse to Stephen Sprouse, you know, the zeitgeist of the era. She had those two pillars to um, strengthen her. And then when she got to Europe, she kind of had great tear sheets and this aura. I think like after a couple of seasons, they knew more about the story. And then you know, discard. But because she, well, she was a blonde white girl, so she could be the muse of a designer here in New York. You know, when she got to Europe, she was a blonde white girl. So she could do Chanel and Gautier and all of that. And it wouldn't sort of be questioned, but me being, you know, African-Caribbean-American, 
it was, you know, there, there were so many more connotations for me than there would be for her. Absolutely. And the, and let's be real too. I mean, all through the, that period in the late eighties and nineties, there was like only ever at one point in time, like a few, maybe even a couple mm-hmm. of like working black models that were really working consistently. So it's like, well, if that quote is filled, yeah. there wasn't, there's, you're done. Yeah. You know, unless it was an African show mm. or the couture, you weren't really needed. Because I grew up with Munya, Katushka, Rebecca, Amalia, all, uh, Iman, Beverly Johnson, you know, all of these incredible black models. And then by the time I started in the late 80s, early 90s, it whittled down to Naomi, Tyra, Brandy, Karen. You know, it wasn't... There wasn't, there wasn't like a huge pool to go around. And um, and then let's fast forward a little bit to talk about something very recent, which was a return to modeling that you did for Interview Mag. It's a September issue, oh my God. And oh. it was such a wonderful, wonderful, wonderful experience with Dara and Cruz, two incredibly talented trans women. It was, it was such a like a full kind of circle experience. That's what it seemed like. I mean, this interview done by Honey Dijon and yes. these incredible was, photos of you. It was like um, what um, Annie Lennox and Aretha Franklin's sisters are doing it for themselves. It was just so incredible. I, I never felt that kind of ease, um, that sense of not being threatened. You know, that, that there wasn't a threat on that set of being misgendered, of being shamed, of being put upon. And I've been incredibly lucky in, in my career. I've been so incredibly lucky, like, like, you know, working with people that saw beyond the circumstances of, of, of what a person is and only saw talent and wanted to highlight and grow that talent from Stephen Mizell to Mugler to Stephen Klein. Like, you know, all of those um, great artists didn't want to tear you down or didn't want to show you. But because like, you know, those those kind of, that that kind of thing where, oh, we want to show the real you, you know, that kind of feeling. Or that there's something sort of mocking in it. Um, That there's something that's like, oh, it's going to be, we're going to make it, take it in this direction to make it really like outrageous. And like, I mean, the the pictures of you taken by these photographers are jaw-droppingly beautiful. I've, I've been really super, super, super lucky to not be like, you know, put into that situation too many times where you're trying to mock or belittle or do that. And to shoot with Darren Cruz and to be interviewed by Honey, it was just like, maybe the world can be what we can strive, the best of our intentions, the best of of us trying to learn about each other. Maybe this is kind of, you know, a tipping point in the human sort of existence that can become better. Not only for us, because we are just kind of the catalyst and the moving engine for the rest of humanity, being comfortable with self, being less sort of pigeonholed and put in the box by gender, you know, that kind of limiting of the spirit and the body. We're just a tipping point of that for the rest of humanity, which I hope at some point, you know, people start to realize. It can start with us, but once it, you know, takes off from us, it benefits everyone those words are so powerful um and i also think that as you've commented on multiple times like just that it is we like we can do so much for each other um within our 
sisterhood within our world. Um, but that ultimately there are so many benefits for everyone to be able to see, you know, our, our successes and our like continued solidarity, um, and stuff. I think, I mean, I, um, it was my absolute dream to, to bring you to Montreal and to have you, you know, give you an opportunity to speak. And I just know there were so many people that were so excited to, um, you know, to just to, and, and so many people need to know more about you because, um, as much as I, you can correct me if I'm wrong. I think sometimes when people are called a legend, they feel a bit like, well, Hey bitch, I'm still living. Like I'm the legend is still the legend in the making. I ain't dead yet. Okay. <laughs> but you are, um, so you are, I, I mean, I just think that the future holds so, so much for you and, um, with illustration and with your art and, um, oh yeah, you're, you're so adored truly by so many people. Oh, my God. I thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Um, I, Connie, we could talk for I don't, hours and hours and hours. And <laughs> if you're not already thinking about starting work on a memoirs, um, girl, I would if I were you. But anyways, you've got a lot of life left and you are still kicking. And I just adore you. I know so many people do. And thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me. Thank you for listening to this episode, which is one that I'm extremely proud of. Connie and I covered a lot of ground and it was so extremely meaningful to me uh, because prior to the pandemic, the plan was for Connie to travel to Montreal for the launch of the exhibition I've curated for Never Apart called Bijou. As of this recording, government restrictions in Montreal remain in place, which means that in-person gallery visits can't happen and won't be happening before the exhibition comes down uh, prior to the holidays. Uh, but the exhibition will stay very accessible online, both through Never Parts website and through my personal website, which is jordankingarchive.com. You can also find me on Instagram at jordankingarchive. In this month's online magazine, you'll also find a bonus mini episode uh, of Radio Never Apart. I spoke with Keisha and Muna of Collective Culture, who will be producing episodes of Radio Never Apart beginning in 2021. These will be in addition to the episodes I produce and will launch semi-regularly, uh, perhaps not monthly, but periodically as part of Never Apart's online magazine. Uh, so definitely check that out to learn about who these incredible women are and also about collective culture. Huge thank you to the team at Never Apart for supporting production of this podcast. And please have a great and safe holiday season. And also a sincere thank you for tuning into this project, which has been hugely inspiring and really was so rewarding during this very turbulent year that 2020 has been. Until next month.